Hey, welcome everybody again to Bethany West Seattle. My name is Prentice, <clears throat> and uh, it feels like I, I, <clears throat> it's been a few weeks since I've uh, been here. Uh, it's good to see y'all's faces, whether you're here and if you're watching online, welcome. We know uh, that, especially the last uh, several weeks, that uh, many people have um, gotten COVID and, and have gotten sick. Uh, I'm back from having COVID a couple weeks ago, so I know how it feels. And so <clears throat> for the many of you watching online, uh, we are praying for you. And, and really, we want you to take advantage of our online worshiping care form that, that we created. We know that there's been uh, several people that have been joining us uh, purely online uh, for the last, even like up to two years. And so we just want you to know that uh, we're thinking about you, we care for you, we haven't forgotten about you, uh, and we want to know how we can serve you as well. And so for those of you that are here, uh, we are continuing this series uh, on Job. And uh, if you were here on week one, uh, because of COVID throughout the staff, I was filling in at Bethany Green Lake preaching there, and so I was here uh, via screen. Ironically, a few days after that, I got COVID and I was gone, and there, we had a guest uh, on the screen again. And so, uh, as Taylor said last week, we are, we are not a church that does the, uh, the streaming thing, but uh, we're, we're also thankful not only for technology, but we're thankful for uh, just the connections we have with the all six locations of Bethany and what a gift that is. And so, uh, if that first week uh, was reframing what Job is all about. Remember, uh, the, the centerpiece of Job uh, is not about why suffering exists and what we do when we suffer. It, it just isn't. I know that it's a book that many of us go to in times of suffering, and that's okay, that's good. But the centerpiece of Job is not the question, why do we suffer, but it's the question, what is our view of God when we suffer? And if that first week, and I really would love for you to check it out, because that's going to be the foundation of, of the rest of the series. If the first week is about what is our view of God when we suffer, this week is what is the view of ourselves when we suffer? How do we view ourselves during that time? And so uh, we read this together, but let me read this again. Uh, our text today comes from Job chapter 42, verse 1 through 6. You don't know this, but we already read this, or maybe you do. Uh, and, and for those of you that maybe don't read the Bible like every single day, and I'm guilty of that too, uh, guess what? You read an entire chapter today as a church, so uh, good, good work. But the word of the Lord says this, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Verse 4, <clears throat> you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And this is the important part. Here's what Job says. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust in ashes. I'll read that again. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's pray together and we'll get started. God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here to hear from you, to sing, to pray, 
God, we thank you for technology, that there's many people watching. Uh, and for those of people that are watching that, are, have, that have fallen ill, including our volunteers and staff, God, would you just bring uh, a healing and would you bring comfort and peace to their lives and to who they are? And we'll thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Now, I don't know why I thought of this, but as I was preparing this sermon, I thought of uh, this experience as a child. Now, now I don't know about you, uh, but my family, we had a tradition of always watching the Olympics, whether it's the summer games, whether it's the winter games. But there's a particular Olympics uh, that I'll never forget. And, and, and as a kind of a younger child, I didn't know exactly what was going on. What I do remember is that my parents were very tuned in uh, on figure skating of 1994. Now, I, I don't remember my parents ever being uh, figure skating experts or fans of figure skating, but for whatever reason, that winter, their, their eyes were glued to the TV because they wanted to see how things would unfold. And, and maybe, maybe I'm even dating myself, but some of you might uh, be familiar with the name Tanya Harding. Yeah? And if you don't know the story, that's okay. Uh, but in a nutshell, the story goes something like this. There's two American figure skaters by the name Tanya Harding uh, and uh, Nancy Kerrigan. And they were uh, kind of, although they were both American figure skaters, they were kind of rivals because there was limited spots for the 94 Winter Olympics, and they both were vying for that position. And so, in a crazy unfolding of stories, there was a competition before the Olympics where they had to qualify, uh, and Tanya Harding's rival, Nancy Kerrigan, was walking out, and she got attacked. And somebody with a baton hit her in her leg, and she fell down, and she was crying, and she was injured. And we don't know exactly what happened. You be the judge. But many would say that her rival, Tanya Harding, had something to do with it. After all, it was her then-husband and bodyguard that was all uh, part of the situation. I don't know. You be the judge, but it was a crazy, dramatic Winter Olympics. And if Tanya Harding was actually involved in this, the plan didn't actually work the way they wanted to because she ended up going to the Olympics and placed in second place. Now, as crazy of a story as that is, there's actually one part that is very vivid to most people. It wasn't even the fact that she went to the Olympics and won the medal. It wasn't the fact that they had drama in between the two. But it was the very moment after she was attacked. And, and there's famous video clips of her on the ground just crying. And she was just yelling and screaming the word, why? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why now? Why me? Why me? Why, why, why? Uh, and and that, that scene, that video, those words have become infamous. And that's what people remember from that whole entire experience. Now, several years later, uh, just a few years ago, actually, she sat down and had an interview. And the interviewer, uh, you may know her, her name is Oprah. And she said... During that time, what were you thinking? Why was that the word that kept coming out of your mouth? And, and instead of this long explanation of why, uh, she said why, uh, her response was simple. 
She said, I thought it was a reasonable question. She said, I, I, I still believe that after that happened, that it was reasonable for me to ask, why? Why? Now, whenever you are experiencing any type of suffering, any pain, any agony, any hardships, I would argue, along with her, that it is reasonable for us, for us to ask the question, why? That's a very reasonable question. Why is this happening to me? And you can probably fill in your own blank of your own suffering and what you're going through and of the pains that you're experiencing. Whatever it is, it's reasonable for us to ask the world, God, ourselves, people around us, why is this happening? Why are we going through a global pandemic? Why did I get sick? Why did that person leave me? Why can't I find a job? Why am I having financial issues? Why am I going through this addiction? Why am I going through this anxiety and depression and, and whatever it is? Why? And I think Job is asking the same question, and I think it's a reasonable question. Now, when we go back to Job chapter 42, uh, the entire book is pretty long. It's 42 chapters, so we just read the end of it. Uh, but the structure of the book is pretty simple. There, there's a, like, like many books, there's a prologue, uh, or there's an epilogue, and there's a prologue. There's a beginning that sets up the story, and then there's an end that kind of wraps up the story, and there's everything in between. Now, in the book of Job, the epilogue is uh, when Job is going through the suffering. When, when God and Satan have this test of, of Job and uh, God allows Satan, and we talked about this week one, to uh, essentially destroy Job's life. Because the accusation at, at the beginning was that Satan says, God, the only reason that uh, your, your friend, your, your, your man Job here is faithful to you is because you've given him everything. And so the Satan or Hasatan or, the, or really the accuser or the adversary says, I bet you, and this is the wager, I bet you that if you were to take away everything, his, his family, his, his livestock, his wealth, his own health, then I bet you Job will stop worshiping you. And so the beginning sets up all of that, and the ending is about Job's restoration because in, the, in, in between is about Job wrestling with it, never doubting, never cursing God, never doubting or questioning God's existence, but yes, navigating and wrestling with what is happening and certainly asking the question why. And in those chapters, the in-between chapters, is Job's friends, his wife, trying to explain, even give the reason as to why Job was suffering, why God stripped Job away of everything, even his own family and his own health. And so that's the center or the middle of the book between the introduction and the ending. And now as Job, as Job searches for answers to his reasonable question of, of why is this, remember that introduction, why is all of these things happening? His friends chime in. His wife chimes in. They're suggesting that it's probably because Job 
had sinned. Job, you must have done something wrong. Here's what one of his friends, Eliphaz, says in Job chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Consider now who, who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? That's verse 7 through 8. Now that's quite the pep talk when your friend is going through the most tragic moment, season of their lives. Essentially what his friend is saying, Job, I know you're suffering. Of course you're suffering. Your kids have died. You have fallen sick. You've lost your wealth. Uh, Yes, Job, you are suffering. We acknowledge that. But let me tell you, his friend doesn't stop there. He says, Job, let me tell you why it's happening. He says, obviously, use your brain. It's because you've sinned. You've done wrong in the world. Now, whatever it is, you should repent. Now, whatever, Job, whatever you did to deserve all of this, because surely you deserve this suffering, and you should figure out what you did and repent to God so that it will go away. And Job continues to defend himself, and he says, I have done nothing. And actually, throughout the scripture, throughout Job, even God says that Job is upright, that Job fears God, that Job is blameless. And then not only does his friend say, okay, I'm going to give you an answer. The answer is this. You messed up. You you sinned. You've done something. His friend continues and says, as I have observed, this is his friend saying, those who plow evil... And those who sow trouble reap it. I mean, that is a wild pep talk. Job, I know you're like one of my best friends. And I know you're suffering, but here's the deal. Here's why. A, you sinned. You did something wrong. And then he adds kind of insult to injury and says, hey, guess what else? You probably deserve it. because, And we all know this saying, you reap what you sow. And there it is. That's the heart of Job's friend's explanation. That's his friend's theology. In fact, that's the common worldview in the ancient Near East. It's what we would call, or what scholars call, the retribution principle. And Dr. John Walton, uh, who's a famous theologian, along with uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Peter Enns, he says this about retribution principle. He says, the retribution principle is the belief that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer, both in proportion to the degree of righteousness and their wickedness. Now, does this sound familiar? Now, we may not call it the retribution principle in our lives, but we know it in other forms. And I would argue that many of us still live by this retribution principle today. We recognize it better as things like, you know what, you control your own destiny. Or, or again, you reap what you sow. We've all heard this before. Many of us, we live by this. Uh, Or all you have to do is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, while these are all inspiring virtues, and these are all good things, the reality is, and this is what Job tells us, those sayings are just simply untrue. 
Not only is it untrue, oftentimes it can be very dangerous. In fact, here's what they say about the, the, the mantra, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Listen to what uh, linguist and lexicographer Ben Zimmer, what he says about the history of this idiom, pull yourself up from the bootstrap. He says this, bootstraps were a typical feature of boots uh, that you can pull on in the act of putting on your boots. But of course, bootstraps wouldn't actually help you pull yourself over anything. If you pulled on them, it would be physically impossible to get yourself over the fence. The original imagery was something meant to call something very ludicrous, and it was sarcasm. It does not mean what we think it means today, a self-made person. In fact, it means the opposite. It refers to something being impossible. And it's funny that even our own rugged Western individualism at its finest took something that was supposed to mean that actually something is impossible to mean something is very possible. And again, these are all good virtues. These are all good sayings. These are very inspiring. But the reality is, not only is it untrue, because we've seen this in our own lives, it can be dangerous. And I'll give you two reasons why it's dangerous. It's really two sides of the same coin. First, it's because it could cause pridefulness. We become prideful when we have this understanding, this retribution principle of why suffering or bad things happen in our lives. First, we become prideful. And here's what I mean. When we believe... When good things are happening to us because we're, all, because we're doing all the right things, we become prideful. If we deduce the very fact that good things are happening to us, and not only good things are happening to us, but we're not experiencing any suffering or any pain, and we say, oh, it's because I'm doing all the right things. It's because uh, I'm so wonderful. It's because God loves me more. It's because God has blessed me, and God has not blessed others. There's a sense of arrogance that happens. When we fall into the trap of this retribution principle, this uh, you reap what you sow, this you pull up by your, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, it can oftentimes lead to this pridefulness, especially if you are the one not experiencing suffering. I made this happen all by myself. As long as I keep doing what I'm doing, then I will experience nothing but goodness. And this is really Christian or non-Christian. Like, guess what? It's because I'm doing all the right things. Again, arrogance, self-righteousness, even judgmentalism. And now I certainly believe that hard work, tenacity, and drive can pave ways. I've experienced it myself. My family has experienced it themselves, ourselves. But may we not forget, and really if you do, life will remind you that life is not so linear, and I wish it was. But it also ignores certain privileges that many of us, including myself, are born into. It ignores systemic and structural racism. It ignores disparities within gender and sexuality and socioeconomics. And certainly I'm not saying that these barriers can't be overcome, but, but if we're not careful, we end up categorizing ourselves and others based on attributes that we have absolutely no control over. And so the danger, the first danger, is that we become prideful because we think we deserve and we earn and we did all of this ourselves to make our lives so darn good. 
But the second danger is that we become self-deprecating. It's the, it's the other side of the coin. And here's what I mean. When, when, when things are going well, when we're not suffering, it's easy to assume with this principle that it's because of our own merits. But on the other side of that, it says that if we are suffering or going through hardship or going through rejection or going through loneliness or whatever it is, it's because we're not doing enough. It's because we are not enough. Because we're not doing the right things. Now, of course, decisions, particularly bad decisions, will have consequences. We've all experienced that. But again, we all know life just isn't this linear. Even Job knows that life isn't this linear. He wonders all throughout the scriptures why sometimes, and we've all experienced this, and it seems unfair, but why sometimes evil prevails and the innocent is punished. We've all seen this, even people around us, even for our own lives. Sometimes life just isn't fair. And when we allow the sum of our mistakes or even our accomplishments to determine the sum of our worthiness, this leads to exhaustion, to even self-hurt, self-destructive behaviors and thoughts. And it's just so hard to keep up. And furthermore, this ideology of of this retribution principle, this reap what you sow, this pull yourself by the bootstraps, this uh, I can do, you know, I can control my own destiny. Really, that ideology is closer to a karmic worldview rather than a Christian one. And if we take a closer look at verse 6 in chapter 42, I think we've all experienced this. And this is a result of, of believing that when good things happen, it's because we did it. It's because bad things happen. It's because we're not worthy. Job says this he, in verse 6. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You ever feel that way? Like, I despise myself. Maybe it's from mistakes that you've made. Why did I do that? How could I be so foolish? How could I be so dumb? How could I, I, I be just not so good enough? Why did I do this? I, as Job says, I despise myself and I repent. Now, this sounds kind of dark and sad, but I, but I want to offer, I would argue, a more accurate or a better way of reading this particular verse. I want us to pay attention just to three words. The word despise, I despise myself, is this Hebrew word ma'as. And a better understanding of this word ma'as is not necessarily the self-deprecating despise myself, the self-hatred, I despise myself, but really I recant or, or I take back what I said. Have you ever said something? And maybe you don't feel like, oh, my gosh, I despise myself. But you're like, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Or there was something that I believed in, and I used to say it out loud. But I don't believe that anymore. And so uh, I take that back. I don't, I don't really believe that anymore. I don't believe this about you anymore. I don't believe this about God anymore. I, I take it back. And so this word ma'as, to despise, is really I take back what I said. I take back. 
And then the word repent is the word Nahum. And the word Nahum in Hebrew, a better understanding of this, and this is kind of surprising for many of us, because the word repent is like, oh, I really messed up. And now there's parts of the Bible where this is true. Repent means we've, we've sinned, we, we've done wrong, and we need to take a 180. We need to turn around from those uh, destructive behaviors that destroys our relationship with God and with others. That is absolutely true. But in the Old Testament, especially the word Nahum, oftentimes it doesn't mean that kind of repent where I've done so much wrong. Because remember, Job didn't do wrong. He was, God said that Job was blameless, upright, and feared God and ran away from evil. And so the word Nahum actually means to be comforted. And all th- many times, more often than not, I would argue, that the word Nahum, instead of this word repent, it's actually the word to be comforted. And so when we unpack all of this, he says, I I, I recant what I said. Now, what did Job say? What is he recanting from? What words is he taking back? Now, in Job chapter 9, here's what Job says. Innocent or wicked, it is all the same to God. This is Job saying in lament, in anger, in sadness. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a plague sweeps through, he laughs at the death of the innocent. This is what Job is saying about God. The whole earth is in, his, <clears throat> in the hands of the wicked, and God blinds the eyes of the judges. Now, these are some harsh words. This is some massive criticism towards God. I mean, I'll read the beginning again. Innocent or wicked, it's all the same to God. And that's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. So what's happening is Job is accusing God of being unfair. Job is accusing God of being unjust. Job is blaming God of turning a blind eye to evil. I'm never, do you ever think this about God? I mean, I I know I do. Like, God, where are you? God, don't you see not only my own suffering, but the suffering of the world? God, can't you just step in, snap your finger, and make it all disappear? God, are your ways actually that good? Are you actually just? God, do you see what's happening? Job is saying, why does evil prevail? Why does the innocent suffer? I'm so glad Job talks like this because I resonate 100%. I believe oftentimes many of us can resonate with this. But then in verse chapter 42, again in verse 3, he thinks about everything he just said, how he accuses God of all these things, and he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And so then he says, I ma'as. I take that back. I recant what I said. Now my eyes have been opened. My mind has been opened. Now I know, God, that I was wrong about these accusations. And then he says, I repent. I I find Nahum. I find comfort. Well, what does Job find comfort in? He says, in dust and ashes. Now, dust and ashes is a symbol, it's a metaphor in the ancient Near East about our own humanity, about our own mortality. And so that's why oftentimes... When if you are if you go to an Ash Wednesday service, excuse me, they'll put the pastor will put ashes and make a cross on your head, and they'll say, "From ashes you came, from ashes you will return." 
ashes and dust represents our own mortality, our own humanity. And so giving, given these words, I would say that the words of, of what Job is saying is, I, I take back what I said. You're not evil. You're not unjust, God. I take back what I said. And I find comfort. I find comfort in the fact that I am just human. I find comfort that you are God and I'm human. For Job, comfort does not come from when he knows all the answers. Comfort for Job comes when he knows that he is just human. I want to connect this with Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. You may be familiar with this, this, this story when when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and he's on the lake and then all of a sudden there's a storm. And it says that Jesus was, was sleeping on the boat during the storm. And now the Bible in Mark, it might say there was a storm. What we don't understand or what it doesn't tell you is that it doesn't give the context of the geography of the climate. And because of the winds and the mountains and the water, during this region, it was, storms weren't just storms. They were like hurricanes. And this happened often. And you can imagine they were on this boat and there was a hurricane happening while they're on the boat. And what is, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping and his friends, they say this. His disciples, they say this. They say uh, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we die? In other words, his friends are saying, there's this hurricane happening while we're on the boat. Jesus, you're sleeping. Why aren't you doing anything? These seem like reasonable questions. And then it says that, uh, in verse 39 in Mark, it says that Jesus, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Then he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? See, rather than embracing their limitations, rather than just trusting that Jesus would rise and would do something. They panicked. And they felt like they had to do something. Jesus, what should we do? What is happening? And Jesus saying, be calm. And Jesus rebukes the wind. In all these stories, even in the story of Job, there's this element of limitations, uh, of human limitations that were feared. But what Job is teaching us, that these human limitations of us just being human, not having the answers to everything, not needing the answers to everything, this is what it means to be human, and this is not something to be feared, but it's something that should bring us comfort. Because when we embrace our own limitations of not knowing, of not being in control, it allows God to be in full control. You see, limitations, human limitations become a gift 
Because it forces us to seek God, not ourselves, not our own merits, not our own powers, but it forces us to be on our knees, being so desperate to surrender and saying, okay, and maybe some of us are at this point. God, there's nothing I can do what's ha- uh, between what's happening right now. I have no control. I've tried everything, and I'm at my wit's end. There's nothing I can do. That's the moment where God says, okay, now I can move. God is saying, now you've acknowledged your own humanity, and I hope you find comfort in that. So take back what you said about unjust, unfair, ungiving, unloving. I hope now your eyes have been opened. I believe this is what God is saying. Now I believe your eyes have been opened. Now take back what you said. Find comfort that I'm in control and you are not. And acknowledging those limitations is a good thing. Limitations become a gift. It forces us to seek God and not our own selves. It no longer becomes about doing right and avoiding doing wrong, although, yes, that's a a fruit of it. That's a byproduct of seeking God and God alone, but that's not the sole focus And that's good news. Because otherwise life can be so exhausting and so painful. And so the response, the only response, because we don't have all the answers, because sometimes we'll never know the answers, the response is to worship. To see God through it all. To be almost tunnel vision. That yes, we should pay attention to all the things that are happening. The good and the bad. But be so tunnel vision in worship and pursuing God. And putting God as our number one rather than ourselves. There's a peace that transforms all understanding. But it begins with understanding that we have no control. You don't have to walk on eggshells with God. Am I doing all the things that are good? Am I going to get struck by lightning? Am I I doing all the right things? Am I avoiding doing all the wrong things? It just feels like sometimes we view God as this vindictive God, this violent God, this retaliatory God, and we are always walking on eggshells. That's not the God that we worship. Nor is God a God that we can bribe with our good works. The response is just to worship God. Why is reasonable. But sometimes we will never be given a reason. Sometimes it's a reason that we'll never comprehend nor understand on this side of heaven. And not everything can be, not everything that happens can be deduced to what we do or we don't do. And there's freedom in that truth. There's freedom in knowing that we don't have that much power to control everything that happens around us. That's a good thing. And so maybe you're going through suffering of some sort right now. Because if you're not, the truth is you will. And I will. And we will as a community. Believe that God is in control. Believe that God is with you and God will never abandon you nor forsake you. Believe that if bad things are happening in your life, it's not because you are a bad person. 
conversely believe that because life is so good, it's not because you deserve and, and, and entitled to all these things. Yes, hard work oftentimes does pay off. Yes, bad decisions lead to consequences. But at the end of the day, life is not so linear. God is in control. So quit being God. Find comfort in your humanity. Find comfort in the fact that God loves you no matter what. And so as we take this opportunity to reflect, I'm going to invite Taylor back up to, to guide us into this moment of response. Maybe for some of us it's time to let go of that control for the answer of why. Maybe it's time for us to open our hands and to say, God, you are in control. Or maybe some of us, we need more convincing. And may this morning be the day that you are convinced that you are not a bad person, that you are not unworthy, that you are not deserving of all this suffering that might be happening. Yes, there might be consequences, there might be accountability, but at the end of the day, that does not take away from your identity being created in the image of God. And that God loves you, God forgives you, and, and God does want you to repent. Not only find comfort, but to change of your ways, of my ways, of our ways as a community. I just thought about my own life in the last three weeks. And really, compared to the things I'm walking with people in and and know that it's interesting as a pastor, as, my, as, as having this title, pastor, and oftentimes it gives me the privilege to walk alongside people in very dark moments of their lives. And I find that as a privilege. And so I say this uh, with that in mind. But in the last three weeks, our roof started leaking. Uh, our heat broke. I got COVID. And all these things happen all at once in the last month or so, and maybe month and a half. I often will ask, what is next? You know, I even find myself asking, God, what did I do? What, what, you know, or what do I do to undo all of this or to change all of this? And oftentimes the answer is just not there. And I just have to trust that God's in control. Yes, there's things that I need to do. I can't just tell Maria, I'll take care of it. I'll just pray the roof will fix itself. No, she won't be very happy with that. But there is a sense of trust that God will guide me to do the right things, the correct things, that God will provide people, that God will provide comfort and healing. And may we believe that as well. Let's pray. God, thank you. That the sum of our own worthiness is not contingent upon what we do or don't do. You love us unconditionally, no matter what. May we believe that. And we know that sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we believe of ourselves that we are unworthy because of the things that are just happening to us. Some of us are convinced that we're better than others because of all the good things that are happening in our lives. God, may you just debunk all of that. And may we believe that everything is a gift from you and that you are the one in control. You are the one that make th makes things happen. It's not our merits. It's, on, it's not our efforts. 
And God, may we find comfort in that. Forgive us for the days and the moments that we put ourselves as you. The sin of idolatry. Forgive us for the ways that we make ourselves our own God. And help us, again, to find comfort that we are not God, we are humans. Dust. Ashes. And may we find your love, your forgiveness, your healing, and your compassion. And may we offer that to others. In your name we pray. Amen and amen.